Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. This is Dr. Omari Sakasa, and grateful to have you with me today for another amazing episode. Okay, in light of the civil unrest that has gripped our nation over racial injustice over the course of this past year, there really stands a great need for models of holiness, individuals who can show us a way forward, who can reveal to us what it means to choose holiness over racism. So joining me on the show today is Michael Heinlein, editor of the book, Black Catholics on the Road to Sainthood, to talk about these six Catholic figures who are in the process of becoming canonized saints. We talk about who they are and why their stories are important, not just for the black community, but for the church universal. So in today's show, we discuss the need for prayer when engaging in political issues, finding solutions that are in conformity with truth, the importance of having real connection with people who think and look differently than us, why studying these six figures is important regardless of the color of your skin, the history of segregation in our American church, and how pursuing holiness is part of a multi-pronged process to find real solutions towards this problem. So when the show is done, please check me out on Facebook or Instagram at Dr. Mario Sacasa. I would love to hear your thoughts and your insights related to this topic and to others. But let's get into this conversation with Michael Heinlein. Michael Heinlein, welcome to the Always Hope podcast. How are you doing today, man? Doing very well. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm grateful and delighted to have this conversation about your book, um, Black Catholics on the Road to Satanhood, and uh, and just the, the intentions behind it and the hopes for it. And and just thank you for, for stepping into this conversation and, and offering a very particular and unique and, and much needed voice to this. But So before we even get into the book and, and, and the conversation about these six individuals who are journeying towards uh, sainthood, tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself to, to the audience. Well, I'm a husband and father of two and uh, grew up in the Midwest uh, on the outskirts of Chicago and Northwest Indiana and continued to live in Indiana. I, um, I studied theology at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. and worked in a variety of different pastoral settings uh, in a parish, a couple parishes and uh, high school theology teaching. Hmm. And now I work with our Sunday visitor as a editor for simplycatholic.com and i do a lot of writing for various other publications at osv and uh including this book uh and a couple others in the past year wonderful well praise god for for your ministry and, and the work that you do high school theology teachers get the utmost <laughs> respect from in my point you know just so much work. God bless you. No, so. yeah, I'm not really appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. <laughs> not at all. Hopefully so. later. Hopefully it, we planted some seeds. <laughs> yeah. And then later in life, they're like, oh yeah, that person wasn't completely crazy. You know, they actually knew what they were talking about. So <laughs> your reward is great in heaven, Michael. Hopefully. It's <laughs> great. That's what they tell us, right? So, all right. Well, praise the Lord. Okay. So, um, the book, let's talk about it, you know, uh, Black Catholics on the Road to Sainthood. Um, it's been a year, of course, um, with with COVID and then, of course, the, the summer of 2020 uh, when uh, really the, the, the George Floyd um, killing, uh, when that made it into the news, of course, it really rocked the consciousness of our country, I believe, and, and, and others uh, that 
occurred and have occurred over the years. But it seemed like it just really was kind of like a boiling point and a tipping point, I should say. And and it just it sparked, of course, what we saw, um, which was a number of protests um, that um, that really brought this conversation back into the forefront. And and of course, we know that some of these protests, we we people are opportunistic in it, and and, and there were there were some some violence that happened, but 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 that doesn't. That doesn't take away from what the intention was, at least for the for the for the good-hearted, the well-intentioned individuals who who really were trying to say, like, it, it, you know, like enough's enough, and how do we really how do we really move forward with this? And so, um, so the timing of the book, of course, is 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 very pertinent to all this. And I guess I just want to kind of know, like, what inspired you to 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 take on this task, to take on these stories? Uh, tell us a little bit more about the book. Um, and kind of just how you see it, it fitting within this larger conversation, both within the Catholic Church that we need to have, and then and then the Catholic response to uh, some of these things that are you know to, to racism and, and injustices that are happening kind of in our in our society. So easy question. Let's just go ahead and start there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I first was thinking about these things the uh, the first moment I heard about the George Floyd situation and saw the outcry. The righteous indignation in response to what uh, you know was seeing a man murdered before our very eyes on camera, and um, but <clears throat> my my attention turned to these figures because they dealt with such systemic racism. They were such victims, even in the church, by racism, um, and we can get bogged down by uh, the various voices that tell us here's the answer uh, we can we can get off track but these figures all heard the voice of Christ very clearly and they knew that he was the only answer I um, I wanted to draw attention to them in some way I remember the first I think it was right there the first week of June I I mentioned to a friend that these figures need more attention. Um, and what do we do about that? I, I, for the most part, these figures are, are promoted very well within the black Catholic community, but then that's only about 4% of the Catholic community in the United States. And so the other 96% of Catholics aren't exposed to these figures in any way. Uh, in any real substantive way, anyway. I mean, they're they're brought out here and there, but um, I wanted to to raise awareness of these individuals, and so I wrote an op-ed sort of essay mm -hmm. for our Sunday visitor, mm -hmm. read that. and said that this is the time. This is the time that we should be focusing on these folks because we, as Catholics, want to contribute. Of course, we want to lend our voice. But then even the Catholic voice is split and divided. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe these figures can be the healing balm that we need in that division. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was the first step. And, and there was a lot of favorable feedback to that essay. I wasn't proposing all that much. I just said, in order for these folks to be canonized, we need to raise awareness to develop their cultists, to have people praying to them because we need miracles. Mm -hmm. That's how the process works. A lot of people think that, you know, uh, the canonization process is 
just recognizing a new member of a hall of fame or something like that. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And these aren't the only six black Catholics that were victims of racism, right. you know, so we don't hold them up just because of that. We hold them up because they embodied the gospel in their reaction to it. Mm. And, um, so it started with that, and then I just started, you know, my mind sometimes just goes off in different directions of how can we do this, and um, I had a conversation with Bishop Joseph Perry about some of these things, and he's vice postulator of the canonization clause for Father Augustus Tolton, and he himself is an African-American, and so, um, you know, he said, yeah, it would be great to get more uh, devotion to these people widespread. And so uh, at first I, I just wrote a little pamphlet hoping that that would be something because OSV has a great line of pamphlets that are helpful in parishes and so on. And so we started with that. And um, then I wrote a little booklet, which was an expanded version of the biographies for our Sunday Visitor newspaper. And that came out in the fall. And then I had the idea of bringing other voices into this. Mm -hmm particularly black Catholic voices, but not just because the saints are for everyone, for all Catholics. Mm -hmm. And I don't want this to be an us versus them. We are the body of Christ. And so my voice, Archbishop Gomez, who is of Hispanic descent and president of our bishops conference, and some other white Catholic authors were also brought into this project because in order to bring unity, we ourselves have to be united. And so this is, my hope was for this to be an authentically Catholic project to bring attention to these people. I think we've achieved that. Mm -hmm. um, I think so. Yeah. But, but, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> politics are still obscuring people's vision. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I write about in the introduction, a great hero of mine who, I have the great privilege to be writing a biography of <laughs> Cardinal Francis George of Chicago. Well, now knowing that you're wonderful... from Chicago, of course, there's, yes, there's right. the connection. And, yeah. and he, he, was, um, he was prophetic in many ways. He had many great one-liners. Um, <laughs> he once said, he said that uh, far too many people in the world have politics as the ultimate horizon of their thinking. Mm -hmm. And that is in the church too. And so I thought that this book could help us move a little bit beyond the political disagreements and tension. I don't know um, that the time is ever going to be right for that though. And so we just have to, it's a small step, you yeah. know? Yeah. I didn't mean for this to be a big major, um, event. I just wanted it to be, here's something that average Catholics out there can take and say, hey, here are some African Americans who achieved what I supposedly want to achieve and be saints, you know, right. uh, that I can learn something from them that when some of my white brothers and sisters might think someone's less than me because of the color of their skin or the situation of their live livelihood, um, they're not. They're my brother and sister in Christ. Mm -hmm. And they're a model for me 
of how to achieve what I hopefully am aiming to achieve, which mm-hmm. is holiness, sanctity. So that's that's what I hope to do with this book. And um, I think at the end of the day, this book can be accessible for people down the road too. Right. I don't think it's just for now. Yeah, you know? yeah, no, for sure. For sure. No, certainly not. In in um because the stories of the saints are are in fact timeless and and that's the whole purpose of devotion to the saints, um, is for us to be able to see those witnesses and not to not to compare ourselves to them, but to rather to be inspired by them and to say, Okay, here are individuals who have actualized these gospel truths in the particulars of the life that they live. And if I see some commonality in that life, then I can be, I should be inspired by that and to say, th- this is, this is a response to Christ's invitation, uh, in, in, in our hearts and in our lives. And, uh, these are kind of heroic ways, uh, that we can live that out. And so, uh, I do agree that there's a certain impetus to, to share these stories now to, to, to be able to draw up and encourage and to spread the devotion, as you said, um, uh, to these individuals. But then, of course, there is a, a timeless element to it, as, as it is with any of the saints. I mean, we still read about Augustine's conversion, and you know that was in the 4th mm-hmm. century. I mean, it was 1,600 years ago, whatever it was at this point, 700 years ago. I don't even know what century we're in right now, you know? And so, like, it, it's, it, it is that the, 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 the gospel is always, um, is always new, but is always the same. And uh, that's always the, the mystery that's there. But but something that you said that I, I really kind of want to draw back to is, and, and I think it's what you're saying with with Cardinal George's quote, is that sometimes we we make politics the ultimate horizon, I think was what you said. It's, the, it's Therefore, it's the ultimate truth that somehow it's the ultimate um, savior that we have, that politics is going to be the thing that's going to save us. And so then what has happened, I, when, when, when that's the case, when politics supersedes our faith, um, we then lose sight of the ultimate reality. And the ultimate reality, of course, is salvation, is, is heaven, is, is, is Christ's uh, victory for us, Christ's invitation into that beatific vision that we speak about so beautifully. And it's, it's the gospel that is supposed to then influence our, our, our politics. And it's the gospel that's supposed to then guide us in whatever concrete um, laws, or, or justices or um, movements that we have in the political arena, not the other way around. We're not supposed to use our politics to to influence our 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 gospel. And sometimes I feel like in our American culture, because we are so divisive right now, um, that we're 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 doing the latter when we've not we've 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 lost sight. And this is one of these issues that I mean. It, it's become so divisive and people everybody has an opinion on it and 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 everybody has a disagreement about what people's opinions or what should be and then we fall into this kind of tribalism where it's like if you don't say x y and z exactly the way that i say it then you're not part of my club and if and if and, and then you're you're that means you're on the outskirts and you're an enemy and and we see this i mean this is an oversimplification of it of course but but then, but then, what we see is maybe some people responding uh, inappropriately to it without saying that, like, well, but what is it that they're saying? Like, there's there's a there's a truth in the experience of of of, of Black Americans that I don't think we'd be so quick to 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 disregard, or be or so be so quick to disregard, which sometimes can be on, on the more conservative leaning of of this issue, 
or be too quick to have simplistic solutions, which with respect may be on the left side of, of the liberal side of this issue as well, um, that it requires real conversation and real um, engagement and, and, and being able to say, all right, like not one thing is going to change us. I mean, racism is, it's, it is, it, it's, it's, it, it's there. It's, it's there. And in, in it's in, in, in where it begins, of course, in terms of what, what, what really begins in terms of growing it is, I think, exactly what we're speaking about here, which is how, 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 does, the, how, does, this, how does Christ compel us uh, to live towards equality? How does Christ compel us to, um, uh, to live with charity towards our brothers and sisters, regardless of, of what their skin is, regardless of what, of what status they live in? Um, and if we can, and, and that's, that's the Christian voice that is absolutely needed uh, within this whole conversation is, uh, is being able to start um, by really understanding what the gospel is and how the gospel applies to, to, to community, to interactions. Um, and then from there, being able to say, okay, so now, now what laws do we need to have conversations about? What, what steps need to be taken? But not even just at the political. What actions can I take as an individual uh, to 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 better my community? Uh, what are things that I can do um, at the most local level? And I think that's what I've uh, what I appreciate um, about what this book is doing is it's not solving all the answers. It's not proposing like here's the solution to to all the problems when it comes to racism. Here's one aspect uh, that can improve this conversation, uh, which is that. Let's raise up these stories. Let's let's increase devotion to them. Um, let's get Black Catholic saints canonized, um, not just for the Black community, but for the the greater good of the whole church. Um, that their stories can be shared, can be told, um, and let's raise up models and witnesses of of the gospel. And, and let's just start there. That's one. That's one proposal. Uh, without even having to get into any of the political stuff. Like, here's a religious response. Let's raise up these stories. Let's increase devotion. Let's pray. And let's do what the church does best, uh, which is let's start there. And then from there, we, we can come up with solutions. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more with your interpretation of what my goal is. I, to quote Cardinal George again, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he would say, the faith isn't liberal or conservative. The faith is true. Our category should not be liberal or conservative. Our category should be true and false. Mm-hmm. And when we encounter these people, these six individuals, we can encounter different, you know, flavors of liberal or conservative, but we always encounter the truth. Right. And uh, that's the only way forward for us. We can we can sit and bigger about social policy all day long. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I don't think any of them really, I don't see anything that's convincing <laughs> in terms of the way forward other than the gospel. That sounds simple to a lot of people say, oh, well, yeah, it's not liberal or conservative. It's true or false. That's so nice, isn't it? But at the end of the day, isn't that what it's all about for us mm-hmm. as Catholics is to be obedient to the will of God and to, you know, imitate Christ in his obedience on the cross Suffering is a common theme for us all. We see suffering so alive in these stories. Mm. And the only way that we can experience suffering as a redemptive path is through love. And not vitriol and hate and division and, you know, all these things that we see as a response. So, um, 
hopefully uh, these stories will help reiterate the cross yeah. in people's lives as the path forward, because it's through there that we have life. Amen. And, and I think, so that's one, of course, in terms of like increasing these stories and this, they're, they're great stories and we're going to talk about them just in a little bit. But one other place that I want to really think that's in, uh, in terms of prayer, we can start. But the other place, and I know this has been said also, but I don't think we really agree with this in terms of just really listening and dialogue. Um, and I'll give a clear example to this. In, in, in the fall of last year, um, our auxiliary bishop, Bishop Cherie, um, gave a, a, a very um, uh, compelling, I guess would be the right word, you know, statement to a group of religious superiors. He was speaking to the congregation of religious superiors for the country. He's he is um, he's from New Orleans, was ordained a, a priest of the archdiocese, but then during his tenure of his priesthood, he felt called to be a Franciscan, so he became a Franciscan, and then just a few years ago was was uh, was made the auxiliary, and um, and he's in his seventies, I would think, you know, um, so grew up kind of here in the in the, in the south and in, in in New Orleans, and so has spoken about his experiences of racism, what he experienced in the seminary, what he experienced with the CPE, and he shares all of this in his in his story in his in his um, in his address. And he had a few eye, eye, eyebrow-raising comments, I think, that that really turned people off. Um, and what tends to happen in our culture is that when somebody it, when somebody says something that we we disagree with, or or it 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 um it just doesn't sound right to our ears, and we know that it's not true, we immediately just shut them off, and we then we immediately disregard everything that they say. Um, Rather than saying, okay, well, what, it, what is it that they really meant to say? And, and what is it that's being stirred up inside of me that it's provoking me? That maybe there's, maybe that's a little provocative. Maybe there was something that was said that, that made me feel uncomfortable. Is that inherently, does that make it wrong um, that he said what he said? Uh, maybe, maybe not. But maybe I need, maybe, maybe what I need to do actually is, is, is I need to engage and listen to what his experience is. And what I have found is that most people with comments that, that come out, you know, that they disagree with, again, whether it's right or left, whatever tribe you're in, whatever camp you're in, if you just fundamentally disagree with the other person saying, you just write them off and you just say, well, there's nothing worthwhile paying attention to in that. And uh, and it's a shame because I think that that was, I know that was a response, at least it's what I've, I shouldn't say I know. That was my impression of what the response was with Bishop Cherie's comments. Um, but as I've read it and prayed with what he said, yeah, I don't agree with everything he said, but but I think there's a truth to what he's saying also. There's an experience that he's trying to communicate that that does need to be listened to. And 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 I think so we talk about prayer, but then we have to have real engagement um and and not be so dismissive uh to what people's experiences are. Um and if we can listen to what their experiences are and then to see how does the truth um bring light to this experience, well then from there we can start saying, okay, now now what are solutions? that are in conformity with the truth. And, and I know that that last piece of coming solutions that are in conformity with truth, I know that's where a lot of people get uncomfortable. And listen, I've been part of some of these uh, racial diversity training groups and things that, that have been done, you know, with that I've experienced both in, in my education and in my continued education. And there are things that there's that people say that I'm like, listen, that, that makes me feel very uncomfortable. You know, the direction that you're taking this conversation. And, uh, and that's not, that solution that you're proposing is not one that I think conforms to, 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 to my, to my Christian sensibilities. And so I, there are places where we have to object when our solutions that are being proposed that are not in conformity with the truth, but nevertheless, that doesn't mean that we can still engage 
in some genuine dialogue that isn't just lip service. Um, because I think sometimes even when we say this, like we're, we're saying it like in a way that's glib or in a way that's cheap or in a way that's um, that's just that. That's just lip service. And that's not what I mean. I mean, I mean, sincerely, like genuine dialogue um, with with individuals. And so one final quote that I'll that I'll throw and then kind of bring this back to you is I, I, I don't. I don't watch Dave Chappelle regularly. And let me put this out to the listeners, okay? Because, and I don't encourage people to listen to Dave Chappelle because I know he can really cross the line and, and not just cross the line, but like really be way on the other side of the line of anything that we would find kind of, uh, uh, yeah, prudent, I guess, or whatever. But he did have one comment that really made me chuckle about this. He said, he said, if you don't have a black friend, you are the problem. <laughs> you know, like mm. it, 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 there's a lot of truth in that statement. It's like, if we're not just like, like if we're not interacting daily, not, not just in a, in a, oh, you know, kind of, this is the right thing that I'm supposed to do, but like genuine friendship with people who have come from different cultures than us, then we have, we, we are the problem, but we've created a silo uh, that, that, that doesn't allow for genuine conversation and listening and dialogue, again, not just about racism, but just about people's experiences in their lives and and genuinely getting to know folks. Like it, it like we have to we have to pray and we have to engage. We have to be willing to have friendships, genuine friendships with people who who are different than us. Um, and then from there, once we kind of understand what people's experiences are, wh- what the Lord is telling us to do, what are the good stories that we can hold on to. Then from there, I believe that's where we can really start kind of talking about, okay, now now we can start having the real debates about what 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 are real solutions um, because there are many real solutions that need to be proposed to this. Um, but then what are the solutions that we can start engaging with? Um, yeah, just like Bishop Sherry was speaking out in the fall, um, Bishop Joseph Perry, who's an auxiliary in Chicago, who's a contributor to our book. Uh, was speaking out in the fall too. He gave an address at Mundelein Seminary, for, which is the seminary for the Archdiocese of Chicago, but the largest diocesan seminary in the country. So it draws from many other places. And he was saying, you know, that we need to schedule diversity into our lives. But he was making the ecclesiological argument that we can't worship in silos. We can't live in silos. We can't operate in racial silos and expect to overcome the problems of racism. Right. And so by saying we need to schedule diversity into our lives, he says, you know, well, we need to worship with other people. We need to go to churches and see, you know, mix that way. He often reiterates too how the U.S. bishops with their pastoral letter on racism in 2018 encouraged and have conducted many fruitful group dialogues throughout the country so that we can sometimes just simply get to know each other. Mm -hmm. It can be through no fault of our own that we don't know people of diverse backgrounds, just basically by where we live and the situation of our lives. But at the same time, uh, we need to expose ourselves to different voices, to different experiences, so that we can get a true vision of the human situation and so that we can truly engage in a united way with humanity. And that's part of why this book I thought would be good too, because there are a lot of white Catholic parishes that have never seen an African-American person worshiping with them. I know uh, that there are undoubtedly white Catholics out there who never thought that there are black Catholics, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I would hope that this kind of book, 
because it's not meant to be some major tome, exhaustive biography mm-hmm. of these individuals. It's meant to be small, concise, approachable, something you could read maybe in an afternoon. Mm-hmm. I hope that this book could get in front of those types of people and uh, just reiterate what I had said earlier, that these are the folks that got to where you supposedly want to get. But I think Bishop Perry has the right aspect, and ecclesiologically he situates it within the Pentecost experience, that that was the full uh, Mm -hmm. uh, manifestation of the church at Pentecost. And um, sometimes we don't let our worshiping communities mirror that. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, even that's a point of disagreement in the church, though. That so what others would, you say, would say that, that his his voice is very much wrong on that. I I subscribe to that because I think in America the only way we can overcome that is by doing things together, getting to know each other, and most importantly, worshiping together. Yeah, I mean, well, the intention of the parish is by being a geographic line, and it's supposed to be that everybody in this geographic boundary comes to this parish to to worship. This is your house of worship. So anybody who lives within this 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 boundary, this geographic boundary, this is where you're supposed to come to worship. Now I know, listen, I don't I don't go to the church that I live closest to, and so I know that there's there's freedom that people have to be able to travel, but to different places now. But but that's the intention, and so the intention is supposed to be doesn't matter whether you're 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 rich or poor, or white or black or Hispanic or Asian, or whatever. If you're a Catholic. Like this is supposed to be your 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 house of worship, and it's supposed to be open to everybody who lives there. And so, but historically, the, the black Catholic parishes might have been across the street in some right. cases from I another know. parish church. I know, and, and those here have in New existed, Orleans, those have remained. And, and same thing. It's, listen, here in New Orleans, we see it. There's yeah, there's a beautiful, not even with black Catholics, but like there's like just culturally, there's beautiful church. Uh, St. Mary's Assumption, which I believe was the German church. And it's a beautiful, beautiful architecture Catholic church. Blessed Silos. Blessed Silos, exactly. It's right there. Right across the street is the Italian church, the St. Aloysius. Literally right right across the street. And they're both these beautiful churches that one was the the, the German church and one was the, the, the Italian church. Um, and, uh, and they didn't worship yeah. in each other's, in each other's camps. Um, Same with my own ancestors. They belong yeah. to a French Catholic church. Mm-hmm. And you can see from their front steps the German church. <laughs> and you can hear from the back side of their parking lot the bells from the Irish church. <laughs> so, so there's a long it's history. Not just, it's not just racial. It's, it's not it's, just racial. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, no, there's there's a long history of it. And again, there there is – this would be the rebuttal, which is there, there is something to be said about preserving culture and uh, – like in being able yes, to have certain yes. cultures and customs that are unique to to geographic and and uh, ethnic backgrounds, you know, like if you're going to go to the Hispanic Mass, you know, you're going to get the different type of music. Well, it's going to be in Spanish first and foremost, you know. Then if that's a limitation because you don't speak Spanish, then okay, that's fine, you know. But like, um, I get that there's something to be said, but still, like trying to bring together worship together um, is is really like you said, it's it in. And what Bishop Perry was pointing to is really, it's the Pentecost. And that's that's what Pentecost was, was that here people from all, every tribe, every nation coming together to worship, to celebrate the the um, the feast. And and then that celebration, this great mystery happens um, that really reminds us all that that we are all meant to be uh, together and we will be together in, in the final analysis. So 
I do have one question well, I want to ask you. Yeah, about- we have the. I would just add right. too the Eastern mm-hmm. rights. Yes, you know for sure. the, the twenty-three Eastern rights that those are all different, current, living, breathing manifestations of the same faith that we profess in the Latin Church, and uh, you and I can go there, and they can they can form us and shape us and inspire us and 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 strengthen our faith just as much as you know the mass at our local parish. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I, yeah, I, I, I would I would just say that why not have some of these cultural expressions at different times? The ten o'clock mass is the Hispanic mass, and the, right. you know, twelve is the gospel mass, or whatever. Right. And 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 try to expose places to that. I think I work everywhere. I know right. that. Right. But uh, why reinforce the racial boundaries if we don't have to? That's right. Yeah. Exactly. So to that point, then, if somebody's looking at this book, you know, and let's just say. A white Catholic looks at it and just wants to be dismissive of it. It's like, well, this is just, you know, another, another attempt, uh, you know, social justice attempt or whatever it is that people are so quick to kind of write off of. What would be your response to to an individual like that? Well, my response would simply be to study their lives and see how they allowed the love of Christ to transform them in the face of great hatred that they stayed close to Christ, they clung to Christ, Christ crucified especially, and they did not allow the hatred they experienced to change them, but rather they changed it into something life-giving. And that's the call for all of us. And so if they have a problem with saints, then they have a problem with faith. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. All right. Well, let's talk about them for a little bit, okay? Let's let's transition and, and let's talk about the, the the figures themselves. So before we even actually do that, listen, like, talk to me about the canonization process, okay? We have different titles: servant of God, venerable, blessed saint. For people who don't know, like you said earlier, you joked about it. Like, do we just think this is the Catholic Hall of Fame, and mm-hmm. uh, everybody gets a nice little bust in St. Peter's, and and they, they all get a green jacket or something? Who knows? You know, it's not, it's not <laughs> that it's not that at all. It's it, there is actually a full process um, that that leads towards one uh, that leads one towards sainthood, and there's these different titles mean something. And so, just briefly, can you describe what that process looks like, just so that we're all on the same page in terms of knowing? what this journey towards sainthood looks like. Sure. Well, uh, the sainthood process, of course, has to begin after the person died. Um, And there is in uh, current church law a five-year waiting period until a canonization cause can open up after someone's death. Um, There are a lot of reasons for that, but I won't get into it. Uh, The canonization cause, once it officially begins, is really kind of uh, a recognition that this person lived a holy life and has what we call a fama, a, a reputation of holiness, that, that there is a, a, a widespread uh, uh, fame for this person. And then not only that, but a, a large, what we call cultus, that that people are praying to this individual and more than likely receiving favors, no matter how small they might be. So. Uh, a telltale sign of that, telltale sign of that would be when you visit the grave of someone who people say is holy and maybe will be a saint someday, you might find notes and prayer intentions left there, or rosaries or flowers or whatever. Um, that's a very uh, uh, common sign of a popular devotion to that person that exists among the people. And then the church hears that. The church sees that and says, okay, 
it's time to begin a canonization cause. And so there's someone that motivates that. Usually it's a diocese or a religious order, but it can be a group of the lay faithful as well, depending on the circumstances. And then they work in tandem with Rome, with the Congregation for the Causes of Saints in Rome. And um, they are kind of the arbiter uh, for the universal church to oversee the process. It's a long process. So once the canonization cause is opened, committees are formed. There's a theological committee that looks at every aspect of this person's faith. Perhaps if they were published, they look at every little sentence that they may have ever written, which is going to be interesting, I think, in the future. I, I because don't know how we're going to do that with text emails. messages, emails, Facebook, social <laughs> right. media. It, that's going to be a very difficult process. Yes. I've had yes. that exact same thought when we start looking yep. at saints that are alive today. Yes, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So they start They start with that. with the, And then the Historical Commission uh, is the other group. And they, they dig into the, the nitty-gritty historical details of the person's life. Um, there's even part of that process is the exhumation of the person's body to prove that, well, this isn't just something that existed in our minds. You know, this isn't just a fable. This is really a person and here is their body. <laughs> you know, it's no small thing. It's, it's, it's right. a rather important part of the process. Sure. And then they assemble all of the research into, um, a book with the help of the congregation for the causes of saints in Rome. And it's called a Positio. So it's the official biography of a person. Up until that point, they have the title servant of God all throughout that process. So servant of and God is, let me, let me interrupt you then. For, servant of God is, this. there's a cultist. This person has been, at least there's some favors that are being um, you know, attributed to this individual. There's some, we've been able to at least see that there's something really good and holy about this person's life. And a it's, formal cause has and, been and opened a, by the church. And a formal cause has been, yeah. has been opened by the church. Bam, yeah. that, that's servant of God. Yep. Great. And then that first stage is a real long process. They could be servant of God for a long time mm -hmm. because it requires, as I say, a lot of research, a lot of time, a lot mm -hmm. of work. Mm -hmm. And then they get that book together called a Positio, and they present that through the Congregation of Causes of Saints to the Pope. Right. And the Pope looks at that and decides whether or not this person lived truly, as the book argues, or mm -hmm. at least intends to argue, a life of heroic virtue mm -hmm. that is worthy of our veneration and emulation. And if the Pope agrees with that, then the Pope uh, declares that person venerable. Mm -hmm. That's a real major hurdle in the canonization process is mm -hmm. to be called venerable. Okay. Uh, so that's a, that's major. And then on top of that, I would add here, all of what we're talking about is for a non-martyr, okay? Sure, sure. Um, but on top of that, then you would need two miracles attributed to your intercession where God acted in the, in your name through, through people praying to you for their help. And um, those miracles go through very long uh, investigations in the causes, uh, kind of congregation for causes of saints. And uh, they have to be proven uh, beyond any reasonable doubt that it was God's direct action. Mm -hmm. And one is required for beatification. So when that miracle is proven, the Pope approves the case that's made that that was indeed a miracle, and that person is uh, declared blessed, and the beatification ceremony is scheduled. 
And then another miracle is needed for canonization. The um, you know, we believe in the principle of subsidiarity in the in the church. The beatification allows for that person to be celebrated liturgically, uh, commemorated in different ways at a local level, hmm. okay. and then canonization spreads that devotion and uh, so on to the universal church. So like somebody, Blessed Francis Xavier Silos here locally, we have a church named Blessed Silos, you know, because he's a blessed, he's here right. locally, local devotion. We're allowed to venerate him kind of at the local church level. And uh, yeah. that second miracle, it'll become a saint. And, uh, and then at that point, devotion can be universal. So... Hey everybody, this is Dr. Mario. I'm taking a quick break from my conversation with Michael Heinlein to encourage you to check out my website on faithandmarriage.org backslash always hope. There specifically, I want you to look at the Hope Leads the Way series. I have three lectures available for you for free on the website that you can, and they're embedded on the website so you can listen to them and watch them there. You don't really have to watch them. You can just listen to them as you're doing the dishes and fold the laundry or doing all sorts of other things. But this series on hope, I really believe is something that is that is needed in our day and age because we have such a fundamental misunderstanding of what hope is. We only look at hope as something kind of casual or something happenstance or something that happens to us rather than looking at it as a virtue that we have to cultivate in our lives. And so if you want to understand how to cultivate the virtue of hope, how to how to instill it into your psychology, into your emotional life, how to understand it and appreciate it from a spiritual theological perspective, and how to just live with this hope, how to really see how hope infiltrates and helps us to live a better life, then please check out the website faithandmarriage.org backslash always hope. Scroll down past all the podcasts and you'll see the three lectures embedded right there for you. It was a parish mission that I did for Good Shepherd in Tallahassee, Florida. But regardless of where you're at, I believe that this lecture will bless you. They will help you tremendously to live a more hopeful life. So let's do that. Check that out. Please let me know what you think. But let's get back to this conversation with Michael Heinlein. That's a wonderful That's right. explanation. Thank you very much for for detailing all of that. And between servant of God, real articulate and venerable is, is a big step. And then we move into blessed and then and then, and then saint. And so right now with the six individuals, we have uh what two venerables, is that right? And then three. Three, three. venerables, excuse me. Pierre Toussaint, mm-hmm. Henriette Lille, and Augustus, Father Augustus uh Tolton. And uh, he's the most recent, yeah. Just uh two years ago he was declared venerable. In Henriette Lille, my understanding is that there is a miracle that is being investigated. Is that correct? Yes, there is a miracle that is being looked at in Rome mm-hmm. that well, was worked. I believe um, it was handled through the Diocese of Little Rock, who was where the favor was reported. Their tribunal investigated it and forwarded it on to Rome because they said it looked credible. Mm-hmm. And so Rome is in the midst of, of going through the investigation process. And so, you know, it's kind of anybody's guess of the time frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID slowed things down, but they were still working through. You know, we had um, Father Michael McGivney beatified in October. So right. these things are still moving. Um, I I said in the book, though, <laughs> why not move that to the top of the list? Yes, right. We right. have this miracle for Henriette. Why not right. look at that and get that prop top priority? It's a great question. Yeah, if this is a real need and a, a real value that we see in the church, then let's do that. Okay, so mm-hmm. l- 
let's just talk about the, the six figures here briefly. Um, what, what did you? Well, even before I guess even before we get to that, like, what did you get away? What did you? What was the takeaway from like just doing this process? And in even when you wrote the the simple op ed last year, and then that moved into uh, a newsletter, and then now into at least a book, a small book. I mean, was there a story or something that that really has captured you um, that that you learned or that really struck you in a, in a, in a way uh, that was new when 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 you're doing this investigations and, and reading about the, the lives of these six individuals? Well, I, I'm always um, rather obsessed about the saints. <laughs> so <laughs> I, these these figures were all in my imagination for a long time okay. uh, in different ways. Uh, Father Augustus Tolton, I would say, and Henriette DeLille are the two that I'm closest to in mm. my prayer life. Mm. Um, but I love them all. And so uh, they were always kind of hovering in my life in different ways. You know, sometimes we seek out the saints, sometimes they seek us out too, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's interesting with Father Augustus Tolton, uh, when my wife and I were dating, we went on a on a pilgrimage, a local pilgrimage in Chicago to see some of the sites associated with his life, the parish he founded, the place he died, dropped dead on the street, the hospital they brought him to, um, and so on. And uh, it was a very important moment in our relationship for a variety of different reasons. But he always has stayed with us throughout our marriage um, uh, in different ways and in our in our life since uh, we were married. It's, uh, for instance, the uh, Theological Commission approved his positio and forwarded it on to the Pope on the day that our daughter was born. Oh, wow. And, and then on our anniversary, a few weeks later, he was declared venerable. <laughs> And so he's just got this special relationship with us. We have his picture in our home in several places, hmm. and uh, we've just long had a relationship with him. We have pictures of all six of these individuals now in our house. Wow. But uh, the um, the closeness expresses itself uh, not just through the research, but through prayer, because some of some of these individuals don't have much written about them, and so. Um, that makes it a little difficult. You know, sometimes uh, a thousand words can be hard to write about maybe one or two of these individuals. Hmm. Not not about what we learn from them, but just about facts, historical data, you know. Um, but all of these individuals, I think, as in all of the saints, we can find something of ourselves in them. And I think that that was my biggest takeaway from from delving into these lives a little bit more closely although I knew them for years, uh, really delving in and, and, and becoming friendly with them on a spiritual level, mm -hmm. I could I could begin to see a little bit of myself in them or them in myself, you know, that they're, um, they encountered some of the, you know, their lives weren't defined by racism, but then they were, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I think that we can relate to them on a variety of different levels, as is the thing with the saints. And so um, that was my my biggest takeaway from this project was uh, developing a closer friendship with them and finding a little bit more of myself through them. Praise God. Well, introduce us to them. So who are they? <laughs> well, the first three that are venerable um, mm -hmm. are Pierre Toussaint from New York, Henriette Delisle from New Orleans, and Augustus Tolton from Chicago. Mm -hmm. Pierre Toussaint was a slave from Haiti. He was brought up with his 
um, owners, if you can own a human being, mm. uh, to New York. And um, he was a hairdresser. And in those days, that was a very lucrative profession. And uh, you would visit people's homes, and it was to dress wigs and mm. so on. Uh, but he would he was such an interesting individual because through his his own enslavement he didn't necessarily live a rough life um, but he was very much attuned to the suffering of his brothers and sisters who were like him mm-hmm. he he used this wealth that he amassed um, to do great good he was kind of the the precursor of an organization like Catholic charities but in his own person he bought the freedom of slavery uh, of different slaves mm-hmm. he um he built orphanages, he financed schools and parishes. He started um, uh, credit union and trade schools and all sorts of different things. And he also used, <laughs> very interestingly, he used his access to people by going into their homes with his profession to spread the gospel, wow. to pray, to quote the scriptures, and so on. Um, he was just a, a man of intense charity. He just gave of himself all the time. And then Henriette de Lille um, in New Orleans. Now, she now just gave to up stop you here real quick. That, um, Pierre Toussaint is the one layperson on the list. Is that right? Well, Julia Greeley would not have been religious. Okay. Um, okay. She was a, a secular Franciscan, so she just okay. adopted a particular uh, third order prayer, prayer regimen and so on. Got it. Um, but yes, but he's he, the only. He lived he's in the, the world only... and had a job and had a profession and yes, he really absolutely. exercised the, what we like a like a layman's vocation in that sense of, yes, of really very much so. living the life of of his profession and using um, uh, the opportunities that that profession gave him uh, to be able to spread the gospel, whether it's through wealth to to buy slaves or to create charity situations. Um, or to, to have access to people and to have conversation with them, you know, as, as he's, as he's doing the, the work of hairdresser. So it, I, I love it. It's a, it's a great. It's and he a, was, he was doing it because he was nourished by the Lord. You know, mm-hmm. he was a daily communicant That's and, yeah. Um, yeah, that was the motivator there. You received the sacrament of charity so that you can be an angel of charity. Amen. And that's what he was. That's what he was. Amen. Um, yeah, beautiful life, really beautiful. beautiful. And he's when you mention uh, the lay the lay aspect, he is um, the only lay person buried in St. Patrick's Cathedral wow. in New York City. Um, he was buried in the in the cemetery for the old cathedral in, in the lower part of Manhattan. And then uh, when his cause really gained some steam under Cardinal John O'Connor mm-hmm. in the late eighties, early nineties, his body was exhumed and brought to the crypt. Where the former archbishops of New York are buried, mm. uh, and a couple awesome. other clerics, but he's the only layman there. Former slave and, uh, hairdresser, there yep. buried among the, yeah. the princes of the church, so to speak. So yeah, I right. don't like using exactly. that phrase, but but it's just beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. All right, well, tell us about uh, New Orleans Zone. Uh, Henriette, uh, beautiful, beautiful story that she, you know, could have. Um, she could have given in to the societal pressures and gone into this way of life of the, what we'd say is concubinage almost. You know, she was um, meant to uh, produce children for a wealthy white man 
and she would have a very good life, you know, in terms of the externals. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it would be a very miserable life, you know. And it seems, however, that she did get started out that way. The records show that um, more than likely she had two children that died. Mm-hmm. We don't know all the circumstances um, exactly, but it looks that way. But this was before she was confirmed. And in those days, not like today, uh, people were not confirmed all that regularly. That was a real like public commitment to the faith. I know we say it is, and it is, mm-hmm. but uh, not everybody was confirmed in that time frame. And so the fact that she was confirmed after these children would have been born shows that there was a conversion in her life. And so uh, what happened after that conversion? Well, she committed herself to teaching the faith first to children, particularly those who were uh, marginalized, particularly those who were enslaved. And she gathered other young women around herself who wanted to do the same. She wanted to found a religious, sorry, she wanted to join a religious community Mm-hmm. And uh, was rejected from at least one, I think two. The Ursulines is what you said in the book, is that right? Yeah, yeah, the Ursulines uh, for mm-hmm. sure. And I think there might have been another. Okay. But um, she didn't stop there. It's awesome. It is awesome. Some people take umbrage with that, I found out, that, that we highlight that uh, because they say she should have never had to do that. And I take a, I take a stop and I say, well, okay, you're right. She but she have. could have stopped there. That's right. She could have given up, you know, and uh, she didn't. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's all the more powerful, all the more beautiful. So it's interesting to see how some of these stories are received by other people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, how they, I, I think they're subject to misinterpretation and misreading. But I, I regard that as a great act of um, perseverance and that, that her her faith and her conviction that the Lord was calling her to do this work, not on her own accord, but in the name of the church Mm -hmm. as a religious, as the bride of Christ. I think that that is what's really important. She wasn't going to give up on that, that that vocation meant something, that she Mm -hmm. was living and breathing the mission of the church through her person. It wasn't Mm -hmm. about her. It wasn't about her. That's what's important to me about that aspect of her vocation. And so she founded the the Sisters of the Presentation at the beginning, and then mm-hmm. they became known as the Sisters of the Holy the Family, Holy family. Yep. who continue her, her wonderful legacy of service, particularly to African Americans, mm-hmm. but other minorities as well. Um, she, she was actually breaking the law in New Orleans, in Louisiana, when she was teaching wow. uh, enslaved children. Um, but you know what? <laughs> Sometimes you have to do that. It's <laughs> unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. You know, the stories, one, one of the commonalities that I read in each of the stories, not to jump the, the gun here, but is that they each encountered <clears throat> these um, uh, it, racism, whether through the church, uh, through difficulty of getting ordained or, uh, or getting into a religious community, but that you see there, or even racism in, in the culture as a whole. And I think also just seeing that it was all over the country. You know, I think sometimes we, we think that racism only exists in the South, but, you know, that wasn't the case. You know, we talk about there's stories in Missouri or Chicago or California where they're, they're experienced this, this prejudice, you know, across the board. And what I appreciate about each of their, their, their 
their their legacies is the way that they dealt with it and in, at the individual level. That yes, of course, we need to change laws. Yes, of course, we need to 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 run it at the flagpole. But we need to start in our own personal response to 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 whatever evil that we encounter, because um, mm-hmm. we all, to some degree, encounter sin and injustice. Um, I'm, I'm not making that as a as a blanket equal statement for sure. Some people experience m- m- more for sure, um, but that there is a way to still um, navigate uh, your own response to that at, at an individual level, um, and that's something like with Mother Anjuta. What you see is that her perseverance. It's like okay, if she would have become a nursling, then here's Providence working out. Then she probably wouldn't have started, you know, uh, the Holy Family, um, you know, congregation. And so, like, maybe it was that it's not that God wills racism or that God wills injustice, but that, man, our God, he can use all things, you know, for, for those who love The him. ugliest of things. The yeah. ugliest the of cross. things. That's the cross. <laughs> exactly. That's the gospel story. And so, and, and also, if there is a genuine desire, and I say this to people who are just in, in discernment, that if there is a genuine desire, even if something blows up in your face, whatever it is that God is genuinely putting in your heart, like... He will he will bring it to fruition. It may look a little differently than what you expected. Like I can see for Andrea, I'm sure that she thought it was going to be in her lines, but then it, it, it took a different path. But nevertheless, the 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 desire that God implanted in your heart, she was faithful to it, and and God was faithful in return, and it, and it took the shape and the form in the end that 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 He saw fit. And so again, this is why these stories aren't just about Black Catholics, aren't just for Black Catholics. These are stories that are for all of us. Who are who are trying to live uh, the gospel? So um, yeah. So let's keep going. The next venerable. The, the next the next one would be venerable Father Augustus Tolton, mm-hmm. who was the the first um, priest from the United States who identified as a black man. There were a couple others who were not uh, that had some traces of black blood, but never uh, admitted that publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, so Father Tolton, though, was a former slave born in Missouri, and um, he got to freedom, very harrowing story of his mother uh, bringing the children across the Mississippi River while being shot at from the Missouri side, going into Illinois with one oar, holding a baby in her arms, and um, they got to Quincy, Illinois in in supposed freedom, and life was much better, Um, but as he was growing up in the church, going to Catholic school, one of which didn't want him. Um, He had to move schools. He wanted to become a priest. He was called by God to be a priest. That's why he wanted to do it. And um, he wrote to almost every, I think, every seminary in the country. And they rejected him because he was black. And the Franciscan priests who were at Quincy College then uh, helped him, and they got him in touch with Rome. And the um, the congregation Propaganda Fide, or the, the what's now the um, the congregation for missions throughout the world, and so he went to their seminary in Rome and studied there, and was learning dialects of of African languages, and so on. Was expecting to be a missionary to Africa, and just before he was ordained, the cardinal who headed that um, uh, congregation called him aside and said, well, if your country is as enlightened as they think they are, then perhaps it's time for them to have a priest of your color. You're going back home. That's amazing. 
Yeah, it was it totally blindsided him. And so he, he ended up back in Quincy hmm. and was at this little parish where the black Catholics were told to go. But there were whites there too. But some of the other priests made things very rough for him. His preaching was apparently quite good, and he was very popular, and the other priests were jealous. Hmm. And they eventually ran him out of town. And he found safety, so to speak, through uh, the graciousness of the Archbishop of Chicago, Patrick Fian, and uh, was given charge over a fledgling black Catholic community there. And they didn't have much you know, by way of resources, of course, in those days, this was still reconstruction, uh, although it was the North. Um, but uh, he found help with Catherine Drexel, Mother mm -hmm. Catherine Drexel. Mm -hmm. And she was able to financially assist uh, at different times with the construction of a parish church, St. Monica's, which is closed now for many years. Uh, never got finished because he died untimely death in his early 40s, dropped dead on the street, coming back on train from a retreat uh, on his way back to the rectory, stopping to make some house calls. Hmm. And it was a very, very hot July day, and um, he dropped dead. And at first, they didn't know where to bring him because he was black and would the hospitals take him. Oh. Uh, but the Sisters of Mercy brought him into their hospital, Mercy Hospital in Chicago. And he was brought back to be buried in Quincy. But, you know, in all of the racism that he experienced and all the hatred that was shown to him, even by his brother priests uh, and bishops who rejected him, he never dished it back. Hmm. And he always worked for integration and harmony and unity. He didn't hide, you know, the mistreatment that he experienced. But when people talked nasty about him, he didn't talk nasty back. You see that in his correspondence. Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff that we need to, you know, correspondence to Rome, we need to get him out of Quincy. Mm -hmm. He didn't write back that way. He's, you know, he was, he was filled with a spirit of charity. Amazing. And so his his is the most recent cause uh, to reach that status of venerable. And now, um, when he went to Rome, this is a question that I had. Uh, he wasn't part of a religious congregation, but he wasn't affiliated or sponsored by a, by a particular diocese either. No, things were a little bit different in those days. Okay, because um, now you went, can't just show up to the seminary, you know, unless you have a unless you have a diocese that sponsors you. Well, I'm not so sure that the propaganda fide might allow that still. I, I don't know their okay. current setup. I would guess probably not with the revisions of the Code of Canon Law mm -hmm. in 1983 that envisions that every priest is attached to a place. Mm -hmm. um, but he was considered to be a priest of the propaganda fide, so he Got wasn't incarnated in the diocese he was working in at the time. Yeah. And so that's why there was correspondence going back and forth to Rome yeah. saying he needs to be reassigned. Right. We need him out of here. So his his obedience would be to the cardinal who's in charge of the the that, Yes, that's right. That's it. Yes. Okay. And he Great. that's that the um, yeah. 
that would he was ordained there in Rome at St. John Lateran Got it. Uh, Cathedral Basilica and uh, owed his ultimate uh, obedience to them. Mm-hmm. Although certainly he was on loan to these local bishops and so sure. He, sure. He, he, he answered to them too. Okay, great. All right, let's keep rolling. Um, let's talk about the, the three servants of God. The three servants of God. Mother Mary Lang uh, would be the oldest opened cause of those three. Um, she, she was the first uh, to found a black Catholic community for religious women, the Oblate Sisters of Providence. She had a, we don't know all that much about her, and, and that's one of the deficits mm-hmm. um, in her cause. And I think that might be what's sort of delaying it a little bit, because it's not uh, because she wasn't holy and not because she isn't well-loved and not because she isn't well-known. I think that there might be a little hang-up with some of the historical details, but I understand that's getting worked out. She originated from Santiago de Cuba, although likely her ancestors may have been in Haiti at one Mm -hmm. point. Um, But she emigrated to the United States. Uh, She made her way up the eastern seaboard at a couple of different spots and eventually settled in Baltimore. She ran a free school out of her home, but uh, she it seems that she clearly wanted to become a religious, mm-hmm. but never could find a place to accept her. Um, at least that's a working hypothesis. We don't have any real proof for that. But she ended up in Baltimore, and some like-minded women joined her. And there was a priest by the name of a Sulpician priest by the name of Father Joubert, who uh, was instrumental in helping the church receive her gifts mm-hmm. so that she could share them. And uh, so the Oblate Sisters of Providence were born. She was the first superior, but she didn't hold that position for life, which is kind of uncommon for religious foundresses. Right, right. Um, she faded into the background and uh, eventually was working as sort of a domestic at the St. Mary's Seminary in Baltimore, mm-hmm. which was a position that she took out of obedience and out of service. But she also took it, uh, and Gloria Purvis writes about this in her reflection in our book, she took it by saying, you need to be fully aware that we're going to be expected uh, to do various things, but we're going to be treated with dignity and respect and allowed to live our vocation as women religious, because mm-hmm. there are other women religious from different communities working at the seminary. And uh, she didn't, you know, want to be taken advantage of. She didn't. She she was clear. She didn't want her sisters to be mistreated in any way. Mm-hmm. That she was among the equals of the other sisters at the seminary. So she, you know that 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 wasn't, uh, I'm sure, an easy thing to say or to write mm-hmm. in those days. No, sure. But she did it. But just a beautiful soul who was filled with humility and resignation to the Lord's plan. Uh, it's no mistake, I'm sure, that they were called the Oblate Sisters of Providence. Hmm. Is that really some, some, uh, sums up her life in so many ways? Mm-hmm. And the other, um, the next one would be uh, Julia Greeley, also a former slave, like uh, Tolton and, and Toussaint. Um, Julia Greeley eventually made her way from Missouri to work with a family, although this was post war. So it was like a. a a position of being a domestic mm-hmm. um, for the the first territorial governor of Colorado, and in Denver she converted to Catholicism. 
And she just clearly, you can see this through her life, she fell head over heels in love with the Lord Jesus and and gave of herself to him through her service to others. She would walk around the streets of, of Denver at night with her little red wagon and floppy hat. She could only see out of one eye because the other had been um, severely wounded through beatings as a slave. But with that one eye, she could see so clearly. She could see with the, with the eyes of Christ. And uh, she'd carry goods on that wagon and distribute them to the those who were needy or young girls who didn't have money to buy a nice dress to go to the you know, uh, parish dance, she would hear about it and drop dresses off secretly <laughs> at their door. Uh, she was just constantly <clears throat> giving. Uh, and the, she would beg on the streets for money so that she could buy things to give away. And any money that she made from odd jobs around Denver, she would give away. She just had the heart of Christ in this most amazing way. And it's no mistake, I don't think, uh, that she had a great devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. Hmm. And she propagated that devotion through her work. Uh, she, she would stop at the, the firehouse in, in Denver quite often, try to spread that devotion among the firemen because she felt they had a very selfless vocation, you know, and uh, would be formed in Christ's heart that way. But uh, just a beautiful, beautiful soul, total self-giving, totally the widow's might, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, and then we have Sister Thea Bowman, who's more contemporary than all mm-hmm. the others. Yeah. She, she just was born in 1937. Away. She died yeah, in 1990. In, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And so there are a lot of people who still, you know, were very good friends with her, still with us. And mm-hmm. uh, she would more than likely still be with us if she wasn't suffering from breast cancer at the end of her life. Right. And so she was a, she experienced institutional racism uh, in her life, although the church was coming around a bit then because mm-hmm. her school in Mississippi, where she grew up in the Deep South, uh, which was um, started by missionary religious priests and nuns, the parish there too. So she was a convert. She converted to the faith through the school mm-hmm. and um, joined the sisters, the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration, and desperately wanted to join uh, them from a young age. Uh, even went on a hunger strike when her parents wouldn't let her move to Wisconsin to go to the convent high school. But there she experienced racism. She she was not shy about that. Uh, but she said very beautifully, she would win them over with her joy. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way we're, you know, that's, that's how Christ won people over was mm-hmm. by, by love and joy. And, and so she did that. And, um, Eventually, she she got involved with uh, cultural ministries in the church. She worked down for the Bishop of Jackson, Mm -hmm. and she gave a a very rousing address to the U.S. bishops not long before she died, where she was really uh, calling them. I watched it. Did you? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I watched it yesterday or a couple days ago in preparation for this. Isn't that that marvelous? She's so on fire, so physically weak. Yep, yep. But did not let that deter her in any way. Yeah, it's 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 moving. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes for people to to access it. It it, it really is. And um, and if I can say this, I'll say this now. Like, I I was moved by it for a couple reasons. One was, as you said, you can see her hair's kind of in patches, and she's obviously this is about a year I think before she dies from cancer, and so she's in the wheelchair, but she just speaks with this authority to to the conference. 
and um and she's she it's 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 complete charity but no holds bar at the same time like there is a fine yeah. line in terms of being rude or disrespectful um or or being too passive and she i mean you could tell the holy spirit was with her because she just hits that that the middle ground quite beautifully uh, where she is very clear about what she's communicating and what her message is and calling out the conference to act a certain way, while at the same time always being respectful uh, to the office of the bishop and, and yep. being off, being respectful to the men who are there, but not, but not holding back either. Um, and so I was very moved by just her witness, um, especially in her declining health, which, which, which was evident, was one. But then on the other hand, to be perfectly honest, I mean, that was what, like 1989 or something? Is that right? Somewhere in that ballpark? And uh, and here we are 32 years later, and that speech could have been given in the Falls Address. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, and, and there was an element of it that actually made me feel sad in the sense of like, um, have we really, how much progress have we really made in the last 30 years? I mean, we want to say, yes, there's been some. Um, and yes, we want to point. We can point to it for sure, but some of the numbers she threw out in terms of um, uh, uh, women, African babies being African American babies being born out of wedlock, those numbers have gone up since the eighties. Um, yeah. Single families in African American communities have gone up since the eighties. Um, all of those those particular statistics went up, but then even in terms of like the overall growth of of the Black Catholic Church or the response of the White Catholic Church to the Black Catholic Church. I'm not sure if there's been much of a needle moved, um, and I could be wrong, but unless this is just my perception of things, and uh, and I I I was I was actually kind of saddened uh, watching yeah. watching it uh, because I felt like um, I I don't know how much more progress we've actually made um, despite this beautiful address that that we hope would have. And maybe there has been, and so I'm. Listen, I'm. I'm. I could be wrong, but that's just my own perception and uh, kind of what my experience was listening to it. Is that this is the fact that this could be the fact that this message could be said almost verbatim in 2021 means that we haven't we haven't moved the needle as much as we probably should have over the last three years. Yeah, it's it, hearts and minds still need changed, and what is the motivator of hearts and minds? You know. Um, it makes you feel for the bishops because they're kind of stuck in the middle in some way. You know, mm -hmm. they could, I know some bishops who have done great work with yeah. racial justice and so on, but how you move the hearts and minds, you know, it's even Jesus couldn't move them all, right. you know, and the sin is just stuck in so many people right. that um, it is, it's saddening. It really is. It's saddening to see because, her voice that you hear there should be heard in every parish in the country, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and I think we can expect, oh, well, the bishop needs to do that. Well, yes, but so do we, you know. Correct. And I, and I and, just don't see that there's a big groundswell in the church from all sectors who are willing to, do, to say and hear those things. It so, and I think that's my concern when, when now in 2021, where it's become so politicized of an issue that it's almost like there was a, a lack of openness to it. But now that it's become political and it's like a forced issue onto you, there's even less of an openness to want to hear what the experience yeah. is because of where the politics are moving with regards to this. 
that makes it even more divisive, which makes it even more difficult to, you know, and I'm like, Jesus, have mercy on us. That's all I can pray. But as you mentioned, you know, she was filled with charity in the way she went about it. That's it. And what I'm seeing now in the church, I'm sure you see it. Every a lot of people see it. Hopefully, everybody sees it. Is that we don't speak that way when we're riled up about issues. We don't speak with charity the way we ought. Right. And so, in some ways, can you blame people for shutting others out? Who wants to hear? such viciousness and nastiness all the time in the name of Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you can't, you can't, that can't be handled through a public sphere. Mm -mm. That has to be handled in a one-on-one dialogue. And I don't know that some people are ready for that on on both sides. Yeah. You know, in in marriage, I'm a marriage therapist, so I always go back to that as my my reference point or my, my, you know, yeah. And, um, John Gottman, who's a researcher in, in marriage, says that, yeah, if you, if you start an argument with a harsh startup, that's what he calls it, almost, you know, three-fourths of the time, it's going to end with a harsher ending. And so we, yeah. we kind of get that, you know, if, if if we approach our wife and we're a little upset about, um, the, you know, the dishes not being clean and we want to, we start coming on strong and yelling at the kids or, or yelling at her because she's not doing her job or whatever it is that we feel as a husband or vice versa, we could put another example in the other way, but let's just go with that. The wife isn't going to be like, oh, hey, you know, that you're so sweet. You've had a hard day and and I can understand where you're (laughs) (laughs) exactly, you know? And so, so, so the way that the conversation gets started, you know, I think, I think is important. Um, And um, so I don't know. I hope, I hope that 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 was my intention for this podcast is to, to have a, 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 a charitable, um, maybe challenging, but at least in charity conversation um, about about the realities of this and the need again for for this as one 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 um, aspect of the solution, one part of the one piece of the puzzle. Um, that there are a lot of other pieces that that need to fall, but but that here's one one piece of it. And so, like you said so beautifully, that that Sister Bowman spoke with charity and and always maintained that respect. Uh, no matter who she was, who she was speaking to, and I think that is um, an, a, a virtue that we compl- have completely lost in our day and age that we need to cultivate again. And so we need these witnesses. And it's up to, to us as the church to be cultivating that for the people exactly, and and modeling it. That's exactly right. And yeah, cultivating it and, and modeling it. You know, being being committed to charity, being what's at the at, what's at the the center of my being. That even if I speak the truth, and we have to preach the truth, no one says that we have to preach it. We have to preach it with conviction. We have to mm-hmm. preach it, um, and things need to be said for sure. You know, spades need to be called out. Absolutely, even within the church, you know, things need to be called out, hundred um, percent. But there's a way to do it, and it's the way to do it that uh, that that um, I think is 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 the way forward for us as, as Catholics and as Christians. So, Michael. If people want to buy the book or anything else you want to plug or the good stuff you're doing on our Sunday visitor, how could people get a hold of you or just learn more about the good stuff that you're doing? Well, I, I uh, mentioned at the beginning, I serve as editor of simplycatholic.com. So people can check out uh, that site to learn more about the basics of the faith and find some really great content from a variety of contributors. We also have just started a, a, a monthly newsletter on St. Joseph for the year of St. Joseph. But I also have a weekly Simply Catholic newsletter that people can sign up for that's free 
and has timely and relevant information about the faith. Um, and then the book of, is available through osvcatholicbookstore.com, or they can find it on Amazon in uh, print or Kindle. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple other books that I've written this past year, one on spiritual communion that people might find helpful in this time of pandemic, or uh, I also co-wrote a book with Father Harrison Ayer from the Diocese of Victoria, British Columbia, who's uh, somewhat of a Twitter personality, so a lot of people know him. And uh, that book was on the pandemic, Finding Christ in the Crisis, What the Pandemic Can Teach Us. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, people have been very positive in their responses to that, and so we're very grateful. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, we'll have links to some of those as much as we can in, in the show notes there. Um, so, all right. Well, final question to ask all my first-time guests. Um, Michael, what gives you hope? Well, Jesus Christ. Uh, that's that's the shortest and sweetest answer, perhaps the simplest. Uh, but um, there's so much darkness out there. There's so much confusion in our own lives, pain, suffering, sorrow, sadness, to different degrees. But the only way we can get through any of it is through Christ, that he is the light. We say he's the light, but he also leads us and tells us to follow and carry the cross. Mm-hmm. So we, we can't expect to find the light without the cross, and that's, that's the real struggle for us all. But Jesus gives us what we need to do that. And so that would be my answer. <laughs> Amen. It's a good answer, and he does, and we, we believe that. And so... Um, that's, that's it, man. You know, that's, that's the, that's the goal of, of, of the Christian message is, is that Christ is bringing it all back together again, is our ultimate horizon. And if we keep our eyes fixated on that and our attention and our focus is there, um, then, then all the things will, will sort themselves out. And, uh, and, and even, even the midst of evils and challenges that we really do experience, there's darkness that we, that we really experience, um, Christ's light still shines brighter than, than all of it. So let's cling to that hope. So, Michael, bless you. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Great to spend time with you. Thank you. Amen. Okay. All right, everybody. Well, as we bring this episode to a close, the best thing that I can honestly say is just asking for the intercession here. So, Venerable Pierre Toussaint, pray for us. Venerable Henriette Delille, pray for us. Venerable Father Augustus Tolton, pray for us. Servant of God, Mother Mary Lang, pray for us. Servant of God, Julia Greeley, pray for us. Servant of God, Sister Thea Bowman, pray for us. May your lives inspire others to continue to pursue holiness, regardless of injustice or racism, or whatever other difficulties that we may be experiencing in our day and age today. Thank you, Jesus, for the great gift of the saints and these individuals who have chosen heroic virtue Continue to bless us, Lord, in our lives and help us to always, always, always cling to the great hope that you have given to us in the resurrection. Amen. Thanks, everybody, for checking out the show today. God bless you and have a great day.